0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome back from our long weekend. <laughs> right? We had a three-day weekend last weekend. I um, want to invite our children to children's church up through third grade. And um, as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, um, we've sung so many wonderful truths about you, repeated from the Te Deum, magnificent, holy things about our God. And Lord, this morning, I just want to confess, we are grateful for every single one of those and Lord reigning high and above all we are so grateful for the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf and washes us clean from all sin and Lord as we gather now this morning to look to your word and we hear about another instance of blood Lord I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand to receive and most importantly to trust in you Lord Holy Spirit we we need you here with us now uh, for this to Be pleasing in the sight of God. Would you come and work amongst us? And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're hitting the first of what are traditionally called the plagues of Egypt. This is the first one, the plague of blood. Now, it's not the first encounter that Pharaoh and Moses have had, is it? This is actually the third time they've been together. The first time Moses went in and said, let my people go, Pharaoh's response was, you're not working hard enough. And so he told him to work harder. And then last week, he went in and told Pharaoh, let my people go, and he threw down the staff, and it turned into a serpent in front of him. And then their magicians replicated that miracle, but Aaron's staff swallowed all the other ones up. So God is working very patiently. This is what we were saying a couple of weeks ago. This is not God's temper tantrum against Egypt. He is working very slowly, very patiently, very methodically to extract his people from Egypt. And so that's where we're at today is now this first of the the traditionally 10 plagues. And what we're going to see in this is the threat and the promise of a river of blood. There's a threat there, but there's also a huge promise in it. And so the the storytelling that Moses does here, and don't forget this, Moses wrote this, right? This is Moses who said, oh, Lord, I can't go talk to Pharaoh because I'm slow of speech and, and I've got a bad tongue and I don't speak no good Egyptian Um, this is that guy, but look at the way he writes, and he leads Egypt, or he leads uh, um, Israel out of Egypt, and he's got all of these abilities, and yet he just doesn't think much of himself, he doesn't think he's the right guy, this is why in Deuteronomy it says he was the most humble man of his age, is he is not filled with himself, he's doing this and trusting in the Lord, and when he wrote this section, this little piece, the story is pretty straightforward, wasn't it? I mean, aside from this amazing, huge miracle where blood is everywhere, but I mean, the the way the story is told, the method in which he tells it is pretty straightforward. God said this is going to happen, so God explains, and in the second part, people enact. So God says this is what's going to happen, and then people do it. It's pretty straightforward uh, as far as storytelling goes, but the meaning is deep and rich. There's a whole bunch that's happening in here. So here's what happens. The Lord said to Moses, so this is where God is going to explain, Moses this is how this is going to happen. This is what this is going to look like. Um, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Um, now, we need to stop for a second. And remember, the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So when we explained that, we looked at that, we said that's not because Pharaoh is going, oh, I really wish God would let me let these people go. But man, my heart just, he, he won't let me and I'm forced to keep doing this. His heart is hardened. His heart is set in a direction. And so when God enacts these miracles, instead of softening Pharaoh's heart, it hardens it. He says, no, I'm getting even more offended by this, and I'm going to reject that even more. So Pharaoh's heart is hardened because Pharaoh is rejecting these miracles. So God announces again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to let the people go. So now I want you to go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Um, Why is Pharaoh going out to the water in the morning? No idea. No idea. Look at the way the story is told. Does it explain why he went out there? Was he going out to do what they used to say, uh, complete his morning toilet, which was, you know, wash your face, shave, that kind of stuff? Nope, doesn't say. Was he going out to offer a morning sacrifice to the Nile gods or something? Don't know, doesn't say. Was he just going out because, you know, it's a nice morning. Maybe I'd like to go get some air. Don't know. Um, that's one of the dangers of going through this is, is we get so much Egyptology in our head Egypt is one of the the most preserved ancient uh, cultures that we have around, and so what we want to do is rush to those things that we learned about Egypt and import them into the Bible. But what we have to remember is as we're approaching the Scriptures, God wrote this. What has been written down is for you. So what we first need to do before we go and hit the history things is we need to go and say, what does the Scripture say? What does it not say? And then after we get that straight, then we can go maybe look at the history and say what's what's going on here. So, um, And one of the other warnings I want to give you is I have heard some really interesting, and put air quotes around that, interpretations of Bible because somebody picked up something that is supposed to be historical. And it changes the entire meaning of what's written because this historical fact comes in. And I, that really always makes me really nervous is the bible was written for us so what it says it says pretty clearly let's go with that and then if the the historical things come in then you know yeah then we'll evaluate that moses tells the story in a very simple fashion so though i would love to say pharaoh's going out to worship first thing in the morning i can't say that he's going out to worship the sun god at the nile with the nile god or something that's not how moses explained it now Would Moses need to explain to the people he's writing to, right? Moses died before they entered the promised land. So this is the generation that came out of Egypt and their children. Would he need to explain to them a whole bunch of Egyptian history and culture and customs? They have lived there for 400 years. They probably knew it. So Moses maybe keeps it this simple because his people would understand this. Fine. But did Moses write this only for that generation? The scriptures tell us this is written down for us. So let's not import a bunch of things here that aren't in the text. Let's start with the text. So why does Pharaoh go out in the morning? Because Pharaoh went out in the morning. Why does God tell Moses to go meet Pharaoh at that place? Because that's the right place to meet Pharaoh, because that's where he's going to be. So God already knows he's going to go out in the morning. I want you to go out and stand by the Nile, and when when he shows up, here's what you're going to do. So that's, what, that's the picture that Moses paints for us. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take the staff in your hand that turned into a serpent. God is not letting us forget what that staff represents. It turned into a serpent. It's not currently a serpent. It's currently a staff. But he has in the past turned it into a serpent. Reminder from last week, that serpent represents Pharaoh's power and authority or at least it represents power and authority to Pharaoh because what's on his headdress is a, is a cobra. is right there on the, on the top of his head to remind everybody that this God, this cobra God, has imbued, imbued him with power and authority. So for Pharaoh to see that, that represents power and authority to him. And when God last week told Moses throw, or Aaron, throw that staff down and turn it into a snake and do it in front of Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh's magicians do that, Well, then God's snake ate their snakes. (laughs) And what we saw last week is this is God's kingdom swallowing all the kingdoms of the world. So now Moses reminds us again, the staff, that particular staff that turned into a serpent, yeah, that one is the one that's going to now come out and strike the Nile. This is a representation of God's kingdom, God's power, God's authority is going to come and strike the Nile. So take that representation and do this. So he takes it in his hand and he says, Tell Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me, saying, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Remember last time Pharaoh heard the Lord? Well, who is the Lord? I don't know who he is. I don't have to obey him. I, my gods are the gods of the Egyptians, and you're in Egypt, so I just worry about them. I don't have to worry about the God of the Hebrews. By the way, you Hebrews are slaves. Why would I worry about your God? He can't even deliver you. But we we have the book of uh, Genesis in our head, right? So what, who is the God that he's talking about? Who is Yahweh? He is the maker of heavens and earth. He's not just territorial, stuck in some little you know, part of Canaan or something. This is the God who made it all. But Pharaoh goes, yeah, I don't know him. I don't have to listen to him. Well, God is going to say, um, yes, you do. And it's coming. So he says, go and tell him I sent you. And he says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. Who who does Pharaoh obey? Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom in the entire known world at the time. Pharaoh obeys no one. Everybody obeys Pharaoh. So for God to come in and look Pharaoh in the face and go, so far you have not obeyed me. It really is a humbling statement. It's trying to put Pharaoh in his place and say, I have the authority and you need to listen to me. Well, Pharaoh won't. So God is saying, this is what we're going to do. I will get him to the point where he will obey. Um, it's going to take a while, but we'll get him there. So you have not obeyed. And so this is what, this by this you shall know that I am the Lord. So what God's about to do has the purpose, not primarily, this is important, it's kind of confusing, God's purpose here primarily is not to get his people out of Egypt. His primary purpose is that Pharaoh may know he's God, that Israel may know he's God. He will do that. The way he will accomplish that is by getting his people out of Egypt, by being faithful to his covenant. But where God is reaching here, first and foremost, is not external obedience. He's reaching for the heart, and we'll see that as we go through. So he says, that you may know that I am the Lord. This is what's going to happen. Um, take the staff that's in your hand and strike the Nile and it will turn into blood. So what does it mean, turn into blood? Well, the simplest, most straightforward answer would be that it turns into blood. Right? As that's not tricky. But what kind of blood? Was it animal blood? Was it human blood? You know, that, those kind of questions. Um, and might it also be the simple, straightforward answer, it turned into blood? In other words, it looks like blood now, that, not that it's necessarily blood, blood. Um, It could be some of the theories are that there was an algae bloom that was very deep red and it covered the surface and it would have a sticky gooey kind of bloody kind of thing. As a matter of fact, I saw some pictures recently of um, a beach in Brazil where it looked like that. It was gross. It looked like water running or blood running downstairs and stuff because uh, there was an algae bloom in the ocean. Yeah, that ain't going to work here because the water coming down the Nile is fresh, not salt. So, But it could be. I mean, theoretically, right now, we we have the blue-green algae blooms, right? And it's killing dogs, so it could be that. Um, It did kill the fish, after all, made the water undrinkable. Another theory was that there was some sort of landslide or storm further up the Nile that blew a bunch of red dirt into the Nile, and as it washed down, it would come down red. And I can remember when I was stationed in Korea... Um, I think it was in the spring, if I remember, there was a big storm that came in from China and blew a bunch of dirt into the ocean, and so you got this kind of red-looking stuff, but it doesn't really look like blood. It looks more like rust or something, so who knows? (laughs) Maybe it did turn literally into blood, but the problem is it would dry up and coagulate pretty quick, but you know what? If God can turn water into blood, he could keep it from coagulating, too, because he's God and he can do those kind of things. We don't know for sure exactly what this means it just means the water looked like blood at least and became undrinkable and killed everything in it that's the picture and it is the Nile that this happens to so the the Lord strikes the Nile and turns it into a river of blood the fish in the Nile shall die the chief staple for the Egyptians at that point is fish freshwater fish from the Nile fish from the sea that was one of their main staples that's going to die so this is the threat so far. The fish in the Nile will die, and the Nile will stink because maybe it was an algae bloom that stank. Maybe it's because it's full of dead fish. Dead fish doesn't smell particularly good. It was out at Lake Elizabeth and when it dried up, and when that thing dried up, it reeked. People around there just hated it. So yeah, dead fish would really have a good stink to it. And then it says that the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So this is one reason why why you might say, well, it might have turned into blood, but it might not because they grew weary of drinking water from the Nile. They weren't prevented from it because there was no water in the Nile. So if it was an algae bloom on top or or dirt in it, something like that, it it could possibly make it undrinkable after a while. You drink it for a bit and just like, I can't stand this stuff. Um, My grandparents had a 100-acre farm and they had a well. In Michigan and the water that came out was so iron-rich it stunk when you drew it it smelled kind of sulfury and it just tasted funky and I can remember getting there you know like I would go out every summer and that first week or so I was just like I can't take a shower I can't drink this water and then by the end you're just used to it and go that's water but this is something the Egyptians could not possibly get used to this was nasty Um, Here's the other thing. So if it was some natural phenomena like algae or dirt or something along those lines, that doesn't explain the miracle away. It still doesn't explain the miracle away because when did it happen? Exactly the moment when Aaron struck the water, whatever it was happened, happened. So even if you try to explain it by natural means, there's no getting around the miracle. This is huge. This is something that's, that's unique and that has happened. And so that's what he does. He stretches out his hand. And then it says, over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, ponds, and the pools of water. So we think of the Nile as kind of this, like on the map, a nice straight line that goes down to the Mediterranean and branches out and that's it. But reality is there there were um, all these other little currents that would come off of the Nile. It watered the land. And so these sources, the... um, the rivers, canals, ponds, and pools of water, were all feeding off of the Nile. So what what Moses is picturing for us here is the complete nature of this miracle. It reached everywhere. It got onto everything. And then it says, um, and there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the wood vessels and the vessels of stone. Now, that little phrase sounds pretty straightforward, but it's actually a little bit more complicated than it appears. Because the ESV snuck in the word vessels. If you read it literally in Hebrew, it says, and it was blood in all the land of Egypt and in wood and in stone. So what does that mean? Um, I think um, the best explanation is it is wooden stone vessels. But what about leather vessels? Is it not in that? Why did Moses phrase it this way? What is, what is he getting at? Well, I think because Moses, like I said, is such an excellent writer, I think he's doing two things with this. He's talking about the vessels, but he's also using a phrase that hopefully the, Isra- uh, the Israelites will understand to be something more than that. So that wood and stone, those exact same words are used to describe idols a number of times. So Deuteronomy 29, 17 says, and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. And that's not the only example. There's, there was probably about six different examples I could have picked. So it's possible that what Moses is doing is a little double meaning here, saying, yeah, that blood was spread everywhere. It was all over everything, including the vessels of wood and stone. But that wooden stone triggers in their mind, oh, they're idols too. And that's going to be important as we understand the story in a broader context. Um, one of the interesting things is, I didn't make this up, this isn't just me, right? The NIV has a footnote that says, um, uh, where'd it go, a- even on their idols. So the ESV translators kind of pick up that wooden stone thing and says it's even on their idols. I read one guy said something about the Egyptians would go in and wash their idols in the morning or something like that. I was like, okay, but that doesn't really help. <laughs> you know? Uh, they don't have water in them, like what's being portrayed. So. This is the the nature of what's gonna happen. This blood is gonna be everywhere. It's gonna contaminate all of the land. And so that's what God had told them. That's what God pronounces to them. And so now in the second part, we get to see people enact that. I think it's important the way Moses pictured this because we did talk about how God can do things, but he does them in history through people in ordinary means. Did God need Moses to stand there and strike the Nile? He could have had a voice from heaven announce what was going to happen and then just poof, there's blood everywhere. But God, more often than not, chooses to work through means, through people like you and I, to do amazing things. So for all of Moses' objections as far as doing this, God has chosen him. And he says, Moses, it's not you. It's not your abilities. It's not how well you speak. It's me. Now go and do it. And so listen to the next thing that's said. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. They just went and did it. Moses is done arguing, right? He's he's argued since the burning bush. I'm not the right guy. And now he's done arguing, and he's just going to go. He's learning. He's growing. Um, Let that be an encouragement for you for the times you don't obey. There is a future where you will, and you'll become more obedient, and it becomes more rewarding. Moses and Aaron did as they were commanded. So there they go. So in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and the water turned into blood. There it is. So Moses is summarizing at this point. There must have been some dialogue that went on before that happened. Pharaoh doesn't get to speak in this. He doesn't get a voice. He is told, we are told what he did. So they go out and they strike the Nile, and it turns into blood. And the fish died and the Nile stank and the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Any part of this escape, did any part not get contaminated? Everything. One of the things that means is it also happened in the land of Goshen where his people were. So God has not so far spared Israel, has he? The first time Moses goes in and talks to Pharaoh, what did Pharaoh do? Make those Israelites work harder. They want to go take a break. So the people right now are suffering along. And, and this is going to be important as we look through these, these miracles, through these, these plagues to understand God will spare his people. But sometimes we participate with it as well. So we'll, we'll get that as we go through. We'll pick up more of that as it goes. So that's what happens. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Now, one of the questions that hopefully you're asking yourself right now is, where did they get water? How did they get I thought water everywhere was contaminated. It all turned to blood. How did they unturn it from blood and then turn it back into blood? Well, what God is saying is that all this water from the Nile is turned into blood. Is that the only place you get water? What about digging a well? Now, you didn't have to around the Nile because there was plenty of fresh, clean water coming from the Nile, but there could be other sources of water. As a matter of fact, at the very end of this, it says that the people went to the Nile and dug, so they dug down to get below the water table so that there would be the natural filtration of the the ground on the water, and so they would get water from that because they couldn't drink it straight out of the Nile. That's another reason I think it might not be actual blood that the Nile turned into because no matter how much filtering you do, you're not going to get water <laughs> out of Blood River. You know, it's, it's going to be very little that's going to come through. So it's probably something happened to the water to make it undrinkable and the, the natural filtration took care of it. So they got water from somewhere. Um, it came from someplace, um, And what they did is they did the same thing, but they did it by their magic arts again. You remember last week when they turned their staff into snakes? They had to do their incantations and their amulets and their magic powders and a little boogie dance to make them turn into snakes. And poof, it happened when Aaron just went clunk, threw his staff down, and it turned into it. Same thing here. What did did Aaron do to turn that river into blood? He just reached out and smacked it. Poof, there you go. These guys have to get some water, and they do their little magic arts, their secret little things. And there, we turned it into blood. Um, So... I touched on it last week. i just touch on it real quick. Did they really turn it into blood? Did they really perform a miracle? Possibly. It could be. It could be a demon came and said, yeah, let's make sure they look good here. It could be that they had a little packet of stuff up their sleeve and went, poof. Ha, look, it's blood. Ooh. You know, a little sleight of hand. Went to the magic castle and learned some stuff, you know. It could be something like that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't actually at the bottom matter. What matters is Pharaoh looked and went, yeah, they can do it too. Big deal. It's not a miracle. I'm not listening to your God. And that's what's pre- pictured here. Is Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. So he stands there, he sees the Nile turn into blood, he sees his magicians do their little magic act and he just turns around and goes home. How cold-hearted is that? This is this is a human heart that is rock hard. I am not impressed. Um, not really thinking about his people. Where are my people going to get water? I don't care if there better be water in the palace in the morning or if somebody's going to lose their head. He is just so cold-hearted, so don't feel sorry for him yet. <laughs> he, he's, he's got a long way to go. And so he turns and he goes into his house and did not take it to heart. And then the Egyptians dug along the river to get water because they couldn't drink the water from the Nile. Pretty straightforward story, right? Aside from this gigantic, huge miracle, it's a pretty straightforward telling of the story. So what does it mean? What's behind all this? Um, Well, first of all, as we branch into these plagues, we have to remember what these plagues are. Are they just a tool for God to extract his people, a a wedge or a lever to get them out? Well, they are, but the way God speaks about it later is, is even bigger than that. So for example, when we get to Exodus 12, He's going to say, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So what God is doing here is not just get my people out, though that's not a small thing. What he is also doing is in these miracles, in these plagues, he is executing judgment, judgment on Egypt and on their gods. He is bringing down judgment on their gods. And it says it again in Numbers 33. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So what we have to see here is this is God wrestling with Pharaoh to establish himself above all the gods. He is wrestling with Pharaoh to establish himself above all kings. He is, he is moving Pharaoh to establish himself above all lords. There is no one supreme above God. So these, these miracles are judgments, first and foremost. And they are judgments not just on Egypt, but also on their gods. So think about that river. It, it turned into a river of blood. The Nile became a river of blood. Why blood? Why didn't he just dry it up like he did with the, uh, the Jordan? stood that up and and dried out a whole big spot. He chose to do it with blood because the miracles are something he's doing on purpose. These aren't arbitrary things that are happening. These are his purposes. Now, when we think of blood on this side of the cross, what do we think of? We sang about it. We are atoned by the blood of Jesus, and praise God for that. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from the forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And we are right to think that. We are right to assume when we think of the blood, we are covered by the blood. We sing hymns about being washed in the blood of Christ. And thank God we are. But why is it blood that atones for us? Why is it blood that washes away our sins? And That's the other half of the image of blood. Blood is also a picture of judgment. It's also a picture of life being spilled. So the first place you can think of that blood is brought up is the first gigantic huge judgment against mankind. It was the flood. After Noah enters the ark and the flood subsides, God calls Noah out of the ark and he establishes a covenant with him. And part of his covenant, he says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I have given you the green plants, I give you everything. So right there, you see this judgment idea. If you kill somebody, if you mar the image of God, if you spill their blood, your blood is required. And what we'll see later on in the, in the law is if an animal kills a man, that animal's blood is required. So this blood is a requirement. It's beginning, just kind of beginning to sketch it out in the Bible. Where's the other place in the Bible that you, I don't know if you'll even think of this, where you hear about a river of blood, just a huge stream of blood? It's at the other end of the Bible. It's in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14. The angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is not angels making wine. This this sickle that swings through the earth and harvests, catches up all those evil people and pulls them away and takes these people and throws them into the winepress of God's wrath. And I can say that because listen to what comes next. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So the river of blood there is a perfect picture of God's judgment. That sickle coming down and swinging through the earth is gathering up all the grapes of wrath all the, the grapes that will be trodden in the press, all those who have been opposed to Christ and to his church and thrown into the winepress of God's wrath and trampled into their blood runs as high as a horse's bridle, which is probably about here, for a roughly uh, 300 oh no, 184 miles. That deep for 184 miles. Do you get the graphic picture of that? By the way, this also really defeats that idea of the God of the Old Testament is really mean and ugly and the God of the New Testament is really nice. Vengeance is vengeance, justice is justice, judgment is judgment, and it's coming. So that picture of that river of blood is talking about judgment. And that's why, if if we don't get this part, we won't understand why Jesus' blood atones for us. Is judgment for sin is the shedding of blood. It is the pouring out of blood. God will require that. And the alternative to that is someone else sheds the blood for you. So as they've been learning about in Hebrews, there's a sacrifice that comes into the temple and you cut the, the animal's throat and you pour out its blood and that would atone for that sin. But the problem with it was it only did one. So you would come back the next day and the next day and the next day and you'd see this stream of blood pouring out. And the picture was supposed to be here's judgment, here's justice, here's wrath. Here's wrath. And it's falling on somebody else instead of you. So that's why Jesus' blood can atone for our sins. We sang about it this morning. He took our place. He stood in our stead. His blood was shed when ours was due. So we were one of the grapes that should have been in that wine press, and we weren't. But blood had to be shed for that, and so Jesus takes that blood. And and the big thing here is that Jesus' blood is not just reconciling a few people. It reconciles everything. 1 Corinthians 1, 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace through blood for everything, on heaven and on earth. Now, reconciling in that case might be being reconciled to judgment. You have rejected the offer of Christ. The reconciliation now is not his blood, but your blood. Or we get this beautiful promise of how would you like instead of your blood being shed to claim that Jesus shed his blood for you? That's that's the other alternative is the reconciliation through the blood of his cross. So how does this fit in with with Pharaoh in all of this? Well, this, this river of blood is, in the immediate sense, it's a striking against Pharaoh's power. Pharaoh made all of his money off the Nile. That was the lifeblood, literally, of Egypt. As the, the, the Nile flooded and overran its banks, the silt would fall, flow out into the, the uh, fields around it, and as the Nile went back down, it would leave this silt and make the, rich, or the ground rich and fertile so that they could grow. It, it, he could travel up and down it in, in commerce. He could move his military quickly up and down. If it wasn't for the Nile, you know what Egypt would be? A big dirt ball. There would be nothing there. There's no purpose for it. The only thing that kept that alive was the Nile. And so what did God do? He struck that Nile. He turned it into something unusable. They couldn't drink the water out of it. The fish were dead. They're all rotted and nasty. You can't eat fish anymore. Now what are you going to do? He's demonstrating to Pharaoh his authority. He pictured it with the serpent and, you know, strike, uh, the, the uh, staff turned into a serpent. He pictured it there. Now he's beginning to demonstrate it. I have authority over the Nile. I have the authority over the way that you make money. I have the authority over your power, over your authority. I'm over all of that. So he strikes it with that, uh, with that, um, that blood and turns it not just limited to that little Nile thing, but to the whole area is now turned to blood. And what struck it? Again, that symbol of God's authority, that, that staff that turned into a serpent. So that's why Colossians, a little bit later, talks about Jesus says he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them all to open shame, triumphing over them through him. God defeated rulers and authorities. Who, what rulers and authorities? Who are they? Oh, yes, all rule, all authority. Jesus defeated them and triumphed over them. Through his blood, that's the context this is in, is through the blood of his cross. By dying and rising again, he defeated not just earthly authorities, but heavenly authorities too. So those idols, remember we talked about the stone and in, in, um, wooden stone was kind of a picture of idols? And that blood was on them somehow too? It was involved in that? Jesus has defeated all those idols too. He's, he's robbed them of all their ability. It was through his blood. So is that a fair j- jump to go from the Nile turning the blood to Jesus? Or did I just kind of like preempt the whole thing and jump ahead? Well, don't forget why this was written. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul explains a handful of events from the Exodus. And he told us they were written down for our, or they were examples to us. In verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So I don't think I'm cheating by grabbing the blood Nile and bringing it to the picture of the blood of the cross. Those things, these things that we're working on, were written for our instruction, they were written to us. So that's why we can do that. So blood is both a threat and a promise here. The blood of the Nile pictures the threat, the threat of judgment, the threat of being thrown into the winepress, the threat of God's wrath. It pictures that threat. If Pharaoh was wise, he would heed that warning. But instead, he hardened his heart and walked away indifferent. He just turned around and walked in his house. I'm done. Just rejected it out of hand. But it also holds this promise. Because there's a possibility that blood could be shed for you. Do I get that from Exodus as well? Think about this. What's the first of the plagues? The Nile turns to blood. What's the last of the plagues? God kills the firstborn. How, where is blood in that? You take a lamb, you kill it, you put the blood on the door and the doorposts and the lentils of your house, and you stay under that. So, just in the plagues, we get this blood at the beginning as a threat. as a a picture of judgment. And at the end, we get the same blood, the blood of a lamb delivering people, causing them to escape, letting them flee from that coming judgment. And if you're not under the blood, what happens to you? Your firstborn dies. Everywhere in Egypt it happens. The plagues are picturing this. It's it's picking up that whole issue of blood and showing us that this is what's at the heart of it. This is what's going on. So here's here's the point here is what would have happened if Moses came and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh's heart was still, well, who's, who's the God of the Hebrews to tell me what to do? But you know what? I'm tired of the Hebrews. Okay, go. Would God have been satisfied with that? It would have been external obedience, wouldn't it? He, he actually did what he wanted him to do. God is not after Pharaoh's external obedience. The, the deliverance of the people of Israel is a secondary issue for God. What God is actually after here is Pharaoh's heart. Listen, how many it comes up twice in just in this section, but it, it echoes throughout the whole um, story of the Exodus uh, that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Uh, Seven fourteen, Moses, uh, Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened; he refuses to let my people go. Seven twenty-two, the magicians did the same. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. But where did this start? I want him to know that I am God. God is after not first and foremost our external obedience. It is possible to, to walk a good walk and to look a good way. God is not interested in that first and foremost. What he wants first and foremost is our heart a heart that delights in him that loves him that finds him satisfying and the result of that will be well of course i'll let israel go the result of that will be of course i will let that sin go i love the lord why would i not do that but but what we can do is we can we can repent of a sin and say oh that is terrible what we're repenting of is i got caught doing it i really look bad now instead of lord I have done something that offends you. I have done something that drives me away from you. I have done something I know you do not like, and I love you, and I want to be more like you. I want to head in that direction. So repent of your repenting. Repent that you didn't repent the way you should repent. That's what Moses, or that's what Pharaoh's problem is, is God is wanting his heart and is working on that, but Pharaoh keeps hardening it. He keeps turning away from him. So obedience is not the goal. Obedience is the fruit. The goal is the heart. And so one of the things that was mentioned again, the stone in the the wood was potentially idols. Here's the danger with idols. Idols turn you selfish. Because why do you approach an idol? Why would they approach an idol? Well, I want something. So I'll do this thing for the idol and then it'll give me something. It's not a love and a devotion to the idol unless the idol delivers. So... Maybe I'll worship the Nile and and it will give me what I want, my power and authority. Who's at the center of that equation? The Nile? Me. I get what I want. It's the most important thing for me. The gospel does the exact opposite. The gospel says, you know what? You really are that bad. You really are. You, You really do deserve the wrath of God. And it doesn't make it simple or, or, or dumb it down. It just says this. And by the way, this is how bad it is. The only one who could shed their blood for you was not a lamb or a goat. That wouldn't be sufficient. The only one who could shed your blood, their blood for you to atone for your sin because it is so grievous is the Son of God come in the flesh. That's the only way it was doable. So in the gospel, instead of being interested in ourselves at that point, The story for ourselves is, you really are not that interesting. It is, look at a God who came after you. Not a God sitting in a a temple, but a God who came after you, who came to earth for you, who came and shed blood for you. That's the God that will set you free from that selfishness. It'll turn your heart away. And so this blood is against Pharaoh, but the promise is for God's people. The promise of deliverance from that is for God's people. So this is our God, this is the picture. This is the image that we're left with. This is the struggle between obedience and obedience. It's not between disobedience and obedience. Are you going to obey or are you going to obey? Are you going to obey because I finally grind you down, wear you to the point where you' actually do what I'm asking you to do? or will you obey out of a love for me, out of knowing me? So this is that picture of that blood. It, it, it's a stark reality. It reminds us that, Judgment is coming. We said that last week when we looked at the the kingdoms of the earth being swallowed up by the kingdoms of God. That's a future event that we're looking forward to. Part of that is judgment. You can't get to Revelation 21 without going through Revelation 19. Sorry. You you have to get there. Revelation 19 is the judgment on the nations before we get to the point where the kings bring their glory into the into the, uh, the New Jerusalem. So there's a day coming, there is a place coming when judgment will happen. So the question that sits before us today is, whose blood will be shed for you? In that day, in that moment, when God says, here's everything you've done, here's who you are, down to the deepest part of your being, and you have a a debt, you have uh, something that is owed, and it's a blood debt, whose blood will you say, Lord, here it is. Yours, it won't be sufficient, it won't last. The, the invitation here is to do what Pharaoh refuses to do and to say, I'm claiming the blood of somebody else instead of being indifferent to it. and going, ah, it's you know, future event, I don't care. The, the picture here is there's an urgency, there's a need now. So will you claim the blood of Christ? It's God who gives life to all things, He's the one who has given the life. He, has taken, he can take the life. The life is owed to him. It's your breath in our lungs. We just act like it's ours. This is a life that God has given. He has freely bestowed on you. He may require any payment for it that is right. So are you going to squander it, or are you going to use that life for him? Are you going to give that to him? The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. And the other important part of that is it does that by giving us a new heart as well. When Jesus died, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back. It's good that I go because if I don't go, the comforter won't come. And he's not talking about a blanket. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming to you. He says, if he doesn't come, you're lost because it's the Holy Spirit that comes and gives you a new heart changes the heart from stone like Pharaoh's to heart of flesh that says, no, I love God. It's the Holy Spirit that comes and sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. That's through the blood of Christ. We didn't get there by bypassing the cross. We got there through the cross because it's the cross that reconciles all things together. That's, by the way, why Satan would try to tempt Jesus by saying, hey, let's shortcut the cross. We'll just skip that part. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you it all. I'll hand it over to you right now. You can have it all. Because if it wasn't for the blood, there'd be no reconciliation. There would be nothing for Satan to give to Jesus except a pile of ashes. The blood was necessary. The blood was part of it. So the first miracle, being a river of blood, holds the threat of judgment and the promise of deliverance. They're both extended to us. Which will you take? Let's pray. Lord, I just want to ask that you would soften every single heart, Lord, that the the miracles that we read about, the miracle of Christ, the miracles we see in other people's lives, the miracles we see when the sun goes down and the stars fill the sky, these common everyday miracles and these outrageous once in a million years, once in a creation miracles, Lord, would you cause them to work in our hearts for your purpose of softening and not for hardening? Lord, I pray that this river of blood, this, this mighty river that charges through this powerful land would be an image to us of the coming judgment. And Lord, that we would flee to you not just from fear, but also from love, that you would offer to us a way to escape. You would offer us a way out. And Lord Jesus, thank you that that escape is not trivial, it's not minor, it's not works that we do or sacrifices that we offer or feelings that we muster. But Lord, it is you. You came for us. You are the Passover lamb. You are the blood on our doorposts so that we escape the blood of the Nile. Lord, soften our hearts, all of us, to this glorious gospel message and help us to see and to understand Your love for us in Jesus, we ask in his name, amen.